0: lucha-masks.com by Pro Wrestling Revolution bringing you in partnership with Masked Republic, the Lucha Brothers as well as Japanese legend Ultimo Dragón. Go to lucha-masks.com and fight Lucha Strong with masks from your favorite Lucha Legends and Pro Wrestling Revolution Luchadores. Stay safe in style and represent your favorite luchador. Get yours now at lucha-masks.com, powered by Pro Wrestling Revolution. You are listening to the Lucha Central Podcast Network. And now, luchacentral.com presents the business of the business.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Business of the Business podcast, an inside look into how officially licensed merchandise of your favorite stars, be it wrestling stars or other stars, gets made. My name is Kevin Kleinrock, and for the past 25 plus years, I've been working inside of the professional wrestling industry on just about every level imaginable, from promoting very, very small shows, to writing and producing television, to selling a series to MTV called Wrestling Society X. And most recently, over the last decade, teaming up with uh, my business partner, Ruben Zamora, who had a company called Masked Republic that focused on Lucha Libre and at the time was making Lucha Libre masks and gear for the stars. And Ruben had also been a luchador for a bit and was a Lucha Libre promoter. We shared a lot of the same sensibilities and desires and formed uh, together. And I joined in Masked Republic. And at the beginning, we really started with how do we help the luchadors and help the fans outside of Mexico get officially licensed merchandise. And at the beginning, it was really very simple. We were making deals with talents like Psychosis and Damien Say says Conan, and we were creating designs, silkscreen t-shirts, or working with partners to silkscreen t-shirts, and we started a website called LuchaShop.com, which is still up today and still sells merchandise today. And that was kind of the business model back then, because as most people are aware, the culture in Mexico, and this is not a knock, this is just kind of a fact of the matter, is that uh, bootleg culture is very prevalent. And, you know, luchadors show up at arenas, and outside of the arena, people are selling their masks, people are selling t-shirts of them, and it's just kind of been a given part of the culture. But we really wanted to teach luchadors about their intellectual property rights and we also wanted to help fans be able to have access to officially licensed merchandise because we really do find that if there is an officially licensed product then fans will tend to purchase that officially licensed product and if there is not one then they're going to buy a bootleg product because they still want a mask or a t-shirt or whatever the case may be of their favorite luchador so we started that about a decade ago Uh, But then about four years ago now, we wanted to kind of take that licensing game to the next level. And we looked at what was going on out there and what WWE was doing and other, quote, major promotions were doing. And we kind of thought, well, why can't we do that? Why can't we create a brand that represents luchadors and goes out and finds more than just t-shirt deals for them. Let's go find uh, toy deals and calendars and books and accessories. And so we formed a brand called Legends of Lucha Libre. We went out and we found ourselves an agency in Firefly brand management, and we started building this Legends of Lucha Libre brand. And through that process, we have not only created a number of products, not only do we have another dozen deals or so that aren't even public yet because of how long it takes to make officially merchandised product. But we've also learned a heck of a lot about the industry. And there are a lot of unique intricacies to not only creating officially licensed products, but creating officially licensed products for living human beings. Because Look, it's complicated to make any kind of officially licensed product. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, if you wanted to do an officially licensed Star Wars product or an officially licensed whatever your favorite television show may be product, that there aren't very complex details into getting that done. But in the end, there's one brand manager or one entity that controls all of those characters. And so if you're going to do, let's say, Star Wars action figures or Star Wars comics, at this point, you're dealing with somebody at Disney who is in charge of that brand. And actually, on a future episode of this show, we will have a former high ranking Star Wars licensing executive on this program and talk about that world as well as their role now in the wrestling world of licensing. But my point here is that there's a big difference between licensing fictional characters and licensing real life, living, breathing human beings who are going to have their opinion about how they should be represented and how they want to see their products made. And so there's a really unique area of licensing that goes beyond just let's put a IP on a product. And that's what we hope to bring you with this show. And then after you've listened, please definitely give me your feedback. You can find us on social media at MaskedRepublic, M-A-S-K-E-D, Republic. You can also send feedback to Lucha Central. And also leave us feedback on your favorite podcast platform, along with please subscribe, rate, and leave that feedback in the review. And with that, I'm going to take us to part one of my interview with... Jeff Everett, also known as Rockets Are Red, so enjoy. With me now on this first episode of Business of the Business, I am very pleased and honored to have Jeff Everett, uh, known to others as Rockets Are Red, and he is a designer, illustrator, author. And he has done a lot of cool work, some of which you've probably even seen, even if you don't know that it's his. So thank you, Jeff, for joining us uh, on the show.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me. I feel honored to be your first guest. I guess you're slumming it until you get a bigger audience.
1: Not at all. Not at all. No, I think that uh, despite the fact that neither you nor I can remember exactly how we met uh, or when we met, we know it's been about four years now, and uh, I have both become a fan of your work, and a uh, you have become a favorite collaborator of ours. So uh, you know, we'll get into what we've done together a little bit later, but I, I really kind of wanted to get back to, um, very, I guess, the beginning of deciding that design and illustration was going to be your career, because as somebody who, at the age of 40 plus, still cannot draw a stick figure to save my life, uh, I have always been very, very much in awe and inspired by those who actually have great artistic skills. And, um, you know, so I just kind wanted of to, wanted to take it back a little bit. From I guess when did you decide that both you, you wanted to focus on art and design as a career, and when did you realize that you actually could because you had the skills to do it?
2: Um, well, I always wanted to be an artist from a really young age, and my parents were very supportive of that. Um, I loved growing up. A lot of the old um, Mad magazines. I loved reading the comics every Sunday. I'd go through them, and you know, back when you actually thought Garfield was funny, um, I would find a lot. I would find a lot of stuff, and I would, you know, find inspiration in that. Uh, one of my biggest influence uh, influences was an artist named Edward Gorey. Who, uh, he's most probably well known for doing the intro to mystery theater on PBS, which, uh, saying that out loud sounds so snooty. But he would do these really beautiful, ornate, intricate pen and ink drawings of like kids being killed and like eaten by bears. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has this whole, um, it's like the gory alphabet and it's like, a is for Amy who fell down the stairs. B is for Basil assaulted by bears, which is hilarious. And I found out later he he um, he did a whole bunch of illustrations for a series of books, which I'm actually reading now to my kids. I'm trying to mess them up as as uh, as much as me. And uh, all the books take place in the same town where my grandparents lived. So like, you know, they'll be talking about like graveyards and witches and all that. And they'll mention like St. Michael's Church. And I'm like, I know exactly where that is. So art has always been something that's that's been around me. Um I ended up going to school um in Washington, DC. I ended up going to an art school. And I remember meeting all the other fine artists there and having that moment of realization of like wow, there's a lot of artists out there all trying to make money. None of us are all that good. And we're spending this much money to basically go and paint all day. I need to figure out how to make money because I need to survive. Yeah. You know, I, I had supportive parents, but it was also a very well understood of like, we're going to help you get through college Um, You still need to help yourself get through college. And when it's done, it's done like no trust fund, no nothing. And so at the school I was at, there was a big divide between fine art and graphic design and doing graphic design was considered a sellout, Mm -hmm. mostly because it was considered, and I think from a very egotistical standpoint, the fine artists, Considered their thoughts and their emotions and their concept of the world to be the most important thing, so that they have to go and force their opinion on everybody, and then you're so grateful for it, you'll end up paying them. And I say that because about ninety percent of the people I met, there were idiots, and they would say things like, "I'm going to paint." my entire room pink and it's to show the oppression of masculinity. And you're just like, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. That's, that's cool. Um, and I remember walking down a hallway and, uh, a kid vomited all over himself and he looked down. This, this was the big key for me. He looked down and he kind of looked at it and then he smeared his hand in the vomit
1: oh, and wiped Lord. it on himself.
2: And then he went, Cool, this is my homework assignment for today. And That's like it. went off to went off to class. Uh, and at that so, point I just said, F- it, I'm gonna I'm gonna become a designer.
1: And we'll be back in just a moment with much, much more with Jeff Everett as we get into his work as a professional designer, his work for agencies his work for the government and starting to get into his work for rock and roll bands and professional wrestling but right now i want to throw it over to denise salcedo at lucha central central to tell you about all the other podcasts coming to the lucha central podcast network this week
0: Hey everyone, it's Denise Salcedo here in Lucha Central Central with a look at all the great shows available this week on the Lucha Central Podcast Network where you can find each show on its own or subscribe to the Lucha Central Podcast Network for every show in one easy feed. Just like the last two Mondays, this week we bring you the debut of one more monthly series. This one called The Business of the Business hosted by multi-decade wrestling writer, producer, promoter, and current Mass Republic president, Kevin Kleinrock, The series will take listeners into the inner workings of how officially licensed merchandise is made. This week on the show, graphic designer and illustrator, Jeffrey Everett, who's created works for everyone, from Seth Rollins to Rollins Band, and from Penta Cero M to The Pope. Yes, The Pope. This is a series you are not going to want to miss. Tuesday's Matt's Mask, and Mayhem takes you back inside the temple as they get inside Lucha Underground Episode 3. If you're in the United States, you can head to tubi.tv where you can watch each episode of the series in advance to each week's MMM show. Don't miss the insider perspective from those who were there on set as the very first season unfolded. Thursday and Friday, we have you covered in both English and Spanish. First up, on Straight Out of the Bodega, Papo Esco, Gabriel Ramirez, and Kevin Kleinrock continue their conversation on a number of California scenes, wrestling promotions, and businesses. And on La Mesa de los Margaros, CMLL luchador, member of the legendary Casas family, son of felino, Tiger Casas, pulls up a seat around the table. On Friday, the Lucha Central Podcast Network brings you Lucha Central Weekly and Lucha Central Weekly en Español. Get all the latest updates from Mexico and the most newsworthy notes on luchadores across the globe, including a look at what went down at AEW Double or Nothing and the latest on Triple A's plans to resume shows. Be sure to subscribe and follow all your favorite Lucha Central Network series on your favorite podcast platforms. And please be sure to give a rating and review to help more fans find the shows that you love. For now, this is Denise Salcedo signing off from Lucha Central Central. Have a great week.
2: I like design because I'm working with somebody. We are sharing a vision, and hopefully making something bigger than just, you know, my simple thoughts or their simple thoughts. We're building a story. We're building a world. We're, we're building something fun collaboratively. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been doing this for 25 years or so. And I've literally worked with the pr- four presidents. I've worked with two popes. Um and then I've worked with Ray Mysterio and Pentagon Jr.
1: So <laughs> it's, it's quite the uh the eclectic collection of of people that you've worked with. Um I I just want to yeah, take it yeah. back real quick because I think you know some people listening might not really I think especially because in 2020 I think if you're growing up um you don't really hear the word words fine art very much. Um can you just mm-hmm. kind of give the listeners a brief kind of description of i think you know design and illustration it's what we see on posters and it's what most i think quote art today that people see in the mainstream is but what 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 exactly or how would you exactly define fine art and the keys to the difference between fine art and you know illustration and design
2: um i find i'll explain illustration and design first because i think that's the easiest one I find design and illustration to be a collaborative process, and that can take multiple forms, which we can get into, but it is taking a person, taking a political stance, to taking a product, um, taking a character, whatever, and interpreting it in a way that speaks to a larger audience. And in theory, it should have a definitive point of view. It should be saying something, and it should mean something beyond, uh, oh, that's cool, man. It should should be larger than itself. Does that always happen? No. Sometimes you just throw a skull out there because it looks cool. (laughs) But for the most part, it, it, it is a collaborative process. Fine art... Now, let me just say, Paul Rand said it best. He's one of the most famous designers ever, which when you say famous designer, I mean, that's like saying <sighs> famous hamburger cooks. I mean, who cares about <laughs> famous designers, like, except for other designers. Um, but he once said, I think what I do is art and I think it's pretty fine, which is kind of how I view what I do. Um but fine art is basically usually working an artist working in a medium where they are expressing their ideas only and usually it costs a lot of money to buy it it's usually hung up with a really nice frame it it's usually i feel very highbrow and looks down upon Say, commercial art or art that is meant to be consumed by the public so and saying all that sounds so <laughs> snobby, but yeah
1: but I, it's, and, and this might be opening a whole other can of worms because I'm guessing that these two are polarizing figures uh, even within those communities, but you know for the for the lay person, I guess or for the average you know person listening, we're talking essentially the difference between going to the mall. And buying a Thomas Kincaid in one of his branded stores. And it's a picture of, you know, a lighthouse or the ocean or whatever. Uh, And picking up, you know, something that Shep Ferry did, uh, you know, an Obey poster or some sort of of a graphic design that's meant to literally meant to be consumed by everybody who passes a billboard or sees something on the street. Is that kind of a good delineation?
2: No, because I, I okay. think if you ask <laughs> I think Kevin, you're wrong. And let me explain to you why you're wrong. Um, well, I'm doing this show, right? I want to learn. And I, I'm sure you hear that every day and you kind of yeah. roll your eyes and hang up. Um I think of fine artist as as somebody who is not would be considered pop culture and it's not something that you would see in a mall. Like um, Kincaid is definitely one of those people where if you, um, if you consider yourself a fine artist and you, and you looked at Kinkade or you even look at Bob Ross, you would consider them like illustrators or you would consider them hack artists who are just churning out shit for people to buy. And to a certain degree, like Kincaid and Ross, though, I think they're wonderful, you know, like Norman Rockwell had the same thing where they did something very well, but it was definitely for mass consumption.
0: Sure. And that sure. does
2: not sit well. Um, Shepard Ferry is total design. It's, it's illustration. It has a point of view, but he's one of those people when he's not getting hired by a client I definitely think he it it becomes that that weird line between art and illustration design I mean I when I'm trying to describe design and this just of course just comes to me now because I'm sleep deprived (laughs) it's the idea of art and business where it meets and the little thin (laughs) line between them that's graphic design and illustration, okay? It's just, they're not one or the other. They they overlap just a little bit, you know? It's not as soulless as an Ikea catalog, but it's not as, you know, pontificating as the person rolling around in chocolate and spreading <laughs> autumn leaves on themselves while streaming about the patriarchy. Um,
1: totally makes sense. They're,
2: they're, it's, it's business and art combined. Yeah. and you know there are artists i mean it's like with music like there are artists that you and i both love who have probably only sold a thousand records but we think sure. are gods and they will purposely try to be as you know antithetical to pop music and that's like that arty the arty flavor and then you sure. have like green day who can do kind of what they want and then sell a million records they would be considered kind of the design
1: you know what you know the the
2: business end of 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 the music world
1: yeah so uh, i guess we we kind of already covered what my next kind of question was going to be which is you know on on your uh own kind of bio you describe yourself as a designer and an illustrator, and an author. Uh, So I just kind of wanted to to touch, what do you see as the key differences between the designer role and the illustrator role?
2: Illustration is really being able to just draw something aesthetically pleasing. Um, It's to capture a mood or capture a story, capture the likeness of a product or a person.
1: Design
2: brings in how you use type how you use production how you effectively trans how you effectively translate other pieces that go on to the finished piece to help highlight what you want to make the message you know like if you are working with a death metal band and you have a picture of 37 virgins being sacrificed using the typeface futura which is like super slick and elegant on the cover is not going to look good unless you're the band deaf heaven it's not going to look good it won't go and that's that's where the piece of design really kicks in um for me i was trained as a designer I don't really consider myself a very good illustrator or a very good you know, artist. I can't just pick up pens and, and draw something incredible. It's a very labored effort for me. Like when I watch on Instagram, it's like, I'm gonna draw this comic book character in 45 seconds. <laughs> and you watch it and it's fucking amazing. And you're just like, oh, fuck you, dude. Like, Because 'cause you're making it look so easy. So then when people come to me and want to hire me to draw something, and I'm like, Yeah, it's gonna take me like forty hours to do this poster,
0: people go, Yeah, but
2: I saw the dude on Instagram do it in thirty seconds. Well, go fucking hire the guy who did it in thirty seconds, you know. <laughs> yeah. So well and I think you know, with that. and like with, with design, it's a whole it's a whole field onto itself designers can sometimes illustrate which is you know kind of where i am but illustrators illustrators as rarely are good designers because it's two very different ways of looking at the world and when i've seen illustrators go like oh i'm like you know i can design i go eh, i mean you know how to use the program but that sure as hell does not look good you know, so it's it's mastering two different fields and hopefully being OK in one and being really good in the other.
1: Yeah, well, and, I mean, and that makes sense in terms of especially and obviously we'll get into it a little bit later, but like our relationship and how you've worked with Master Public, where, you know. sometimes I'll have an idea for something and take it so far as, okay, I can, you know, maybe sketch it out on paper in terms of like my initial idea for a layout, or maybe I can jump into Photoshop and I'm just going to use Futura or Times New Roman or whatever. And I'm going to go, here's the basic idea. And then I send it to you. And like, you know, a week later, we have something absolutely amazing back. And it's like, okay, now this, this is designed. This is a work of art. This is something we can put out to the public. And so I, I completely get that designer um, element, but I don't think I've ever really in the past thought about the uh, the real kind of differences. Um, you know, I, I definitely want to talk about the fact that you really have uh, different pockets of clients that you work with. You have your entertainment clients, you have your corporate clients, you have your nonprofit clients. Um, but I think because we're going to focus this podcast on officially licensed merchandise and that kind of complicated process of creating officially licensed merchandise, whether it be for living, breathing people, or whether it be for just a iconic brand, um, I kind of want to jump into your first commercial work. So you get trained, you, you go to school, you learn about design. And what was really the first commercial uh, piece of work or job that you had after you finished your training?
2: So I, I graduated from American University in DC, and I transferred out of the art school. Uh, thank God, because I realized that in order to be successful in the world, you can't just live in a hovel creating art with sticks and glue. You have to be able to communicate, which I'm barely functioning at. Um, you have to be able to learn how to read and write properly. You have to learn how to relate to people. Again, I'm mediocre at all these things, as you can tell right now. Um. But when I left AU, I ended up working for three or four years at a uh, public relations firm in Washington, D.C. And I, when I first got hired there, I had a really great boss named Melinda. And she would really try to push for good ideas. And we got to do work for the Clintons. Um, who was president at the time we got to do work with like environmental groups. We got to do a lot of, as I'll say, feel good, do good kind of work. And, but a lot of, I mean, none of it was illustration based. It was all, um, it was all just, you know, newsletters, publications, annual reports, advertising, things like that. And during that time I was still doing my own, um, pen and ink work on the side. Now while doing all this, you kind of learn as you go, that if you do nonprofit graphic design, your next job will be with a nonprofit group or you know another place doing this kind of work because you don't work for a nonprofit and then go work for a skateboard company. So after four or five years, I, I ended up realizing I'm gonna shoot myself in the face if I keep doing this kind of work, especially cause a, uh, a new boss came in and the new boss was definitely one of those, you know, old, old boys kind of network. Like if you watch the show, mad men, they all took that shit really seriously where it's like, we're going out for, you know, martinis at lunch and shit like that. And I was just not into that. I was really into you know the punk and hardcore music scene in dc i was into weirdo comics and movies and things like that and just i didn't feel right there so i ended up uh, moving to new york city to go to the school of visual arts which had a to get my master's degree and their master's degree program was called designer as author uh, which later kind of revamped to designer as entrepreneur. And it was this idea of, you know, like what Jay-Z said, you know, I'm a business comma Mm -hmm. man. And that's, you know, what really led me into doing work for musicians, doing work for um, wrestlers, doing work for just crazy people such as yourself. And it really made me appreciate, again, people like you, who just figure out a passion and go do it. And it may not be successful right off the bat, but there's the mentality of I'm going to do this. Someone's going to find it and love it.
1: And that took off big time in New York. So I want to, before we get too far ahead, and I know I guess it kind of actually, I'm jumping ahead where I, where I originally planned to, but you know, you talked about working for the PR firm and working on a piece for the Clintons. So, mm-hmm. what, it, let, let's talk because, in, in, you know, the core of this show really is about how do you create officially licensed works with the approval of the people that uh, own the IP or are the IP. So, walk us through that a little bit. What was it like or what was the process like creating something for the Clintons and how did that go compared to some of the other, um, jobs that you've done where you've had to create for someone who maybe wasn't as important or powerful as the president of the United States? Um,
2: you know, I'll take it a step further because I can remember this one really well. and There's a good story in this one. So I actually did work for the Pope. And it was the, the Pope that had the red shoes. Can't remember. I'm obviously not Catholic. Um, but it was the one before the current one that we have now. And they were com- he was coming to Washington D.C. to give a mass to you know have a meeting at one of the huge ass stadiums that we have here, and we got contacted about three weeks of ahead of time, and you know when I say we this is not my company I was working for somebody and they hired me to, to help with this and you figure like when the Pope is coming this is like something that gets planned, you know, six months, a year, multiple years ahead of time. So you'd figure like, Oh, graphic design, maybe we should start talking about that at the beginning. No, sure. it was like a month ahead of time. And it was a, uh, we need a logo. We need to do Wait, you need a logo. For the Pope
1: the needed a logo a- or the appearance needed a logo.
2: Um, both. So the, the Pope needed a logo that they would show while he was doing his benediction or, or whatever it was. And this symbol, I mean, it was specifically for the event. Um, but it would be on like banners. It would be on signage. It was on Metro cards, our, our subway, uh, in DC, our, uh, our subway system doesn't have tokens. It has like a little card system. So you have to swipe a card to get in. So like we, you know, it was on that, it was on Metro signage. It was everywhere. I mean, this is a huge event. And so with that, you know, my job is to not only come up with a a symbol for this event, it was also, we had to create a symbol that can be used small or the size of a truck. And a lot of that takes up, I mean, it's a lot of, Learning how to think in scale, uh, and and so the the approval process actually went really quickly. You know, we had to give three or four different versions, and then you go through uh, two to three rounds of revisions. Um, one of the things that I learned is that drawing a logo at you know four or five inches, when you blow it up to be fifty feet high, which is something that happened. You realize that that little um, that little curve that's off by you know one percent really actually matters because when you see it huge like that you go oh shit I should have done that correctly um, so that was kind of embarrassing um, so like the logo we came up with ended up being used uh, I remember like Tiffany's contacted us Tiffany's the uh, the jewelry maker in New York they nice. were making I I. Well, listen to this. This is really up. They were making silver dog tags with our logo on it. Now, just stop and think about that for a second. silver dog tags. So people were paying like $150 for this dog tag. And dog tags are usually made for people who have died. Like, they're for people in the military. So when they die, they can be identified. Like, yeah that's pretty, that's pretty up. Um, I'm really glad I don't work for this company anymore, so they can't fire <laughs> me. Um, but like, so it was things like that. But what really, what really stuck out for me was, um, it was not a hard process. It went very
1: smoothly. And a
2: lot of that is because over the years, I mean, and you know me, I'm fairly straightforward when I talk about expectations you know, if you contact me and you're like, hey, Jeff, you know, I, I need this PowerPoint or I need this cover, you know, I'll say, you know, Kevin, you know, I'll do it. I'll gladly do it, you know, but it's going to take me a week. Please remind me in five days because that's when I'll start working on it, <laughs> you know, yeah. or or, um, you know, when I'm doing rounds of revisions, it's like this is round two. We have a week left to go. If you need more revisions, I need them by tomorrow. And so having that type of open communications made it much smoother um, compared to like when I work with like smaller bands or smaller clients where it's like a very personal, very like, this is something I've been working on for six months and I want you to draw the cover for me, Um, (laughs) you know, and the budget's like $500 every single time those projects are usually the worst because yeah, it yeah. is it is such a passion project for these people whereas like with the pope it's just like yeah you know he's doing 50 of these it's just another <laughs> logo like just get it done and don't have it look bad and hopefully we'll sell a lot of teddy bears you know um the fun thing about the pope project which uh the punker in me always appreciates is so his his event was like either on his birthday or the day after his birthday. And so we got to design the birthday card for the Pope. Specifically, I got to design the birthday card for the Pope. And so the art director, the person I was working with, was like, you know, the, the most pleasant person in the world, total lesbian. Okay. And then you have me covered in tattoos, listening to Slayer every moment <laughs> I can while designing this stuff. And so like, we would, we would throw in like little jokes here and there. Um, well, I'm going to, hold on. I'll take, I'll bite the bullet on this one. I threw in little jokes here and there. So like for the the birthday card for the Pope, they wanted like a a beautiful like night sky or something over the, over the stadium. So I made every single star in the sky, a pentagram Uh uh, just to be like, yeah, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so the the child, my childish nature really paid off. Well, no one mentioned it though. Um, Then I got to sign the card that was given to the Pope. So somewhere in the bowels of the
1: Vatican is,
2: is my card gathering dust slowly being infused with satanic spirits oh my goodness
1: uh okay so back to the clintons
2: <laughs> okay Clintons.
1: all right go on oh no I was, so what was that process well the pope the pope process was fascinating uh i'm glad we got this story in there because i did not realize or remember that you had worked with the pope but um so working with the president though or any president because you've you've worked now under multiple presidents um what's what's that were you making a a all but
2: all but the current one
1: that's quite all right uh were you making a piece specifically of them and with their likeness or was it just for them
2: uh it ended up being several reports that were being done in their name and these are like huge ass reports that are like 400 pages long um and so they did have a they did have involvement in it, but it wasn't like I was going to go hang out with Bill and Hillary um, at the White House. Uh, it wasn't anything like that. Um, and then we also I also got to work with the Presidential Libraries, mm-hmm. doing uh, designs for the Clinton uh, Memorial not memorial, but for the Clinton Presidential Library. And so with that, like you get to see all of the behind the scenes stuff that happens with um, stuff that gets sent to the president, stuff the president signs off on things like, you know, if you in your fifth grade class, if you make a macaroni and glue on construction paper portrait and you send it to Bill Clinton it becomes the property of the United States government and they by law have to do everything within their power to keep it up to quality so they That's have amazing. to do like concert they have to do like conservation on it and so and they have to keep it they just can't they can't just throw it away and i'm sure after a while they do cuz i mean this stuff happens a lot but like you know i think Laura Laura Bush got into trouble because she kept dresses that were sent to her from, from various fashion designers without paying what she should have paid for them. So there's a whole process behind all that stuff. and it, it is utterly fascinating, is fascinating. I mean if you, if, you, if you think like the rule book to wrestling is, is large, the <laughs> rule book to like, you know, you know, doing anything with the government, is just stacks and stacks and stacks of like things you cannot do and like five things that you can do.
1: Well, so, that probably makes sense but yeah, though, it, for for the benefit of the rest of, the rest of us. Uh but that's no, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that uh that a child's macaroni uh portrait of the president would have to be preserved. But that's, that's uh I think now, now I want to make a macaroni pre- a portrait of a president and send, send one, not this one, but maybe the you next You should, one. you should. Well, no,
2: like for this one, you'll just do spam and just send it to him. But uh, no, seriously, like all that stuff needs to be kept. And so um, the one that was really fascinating was the Nixon presidential library for many years was not part of the United States um, committee, it wasn't an official United States presidential library. It was just like the Richard Nixon Library, because you had these people there who worked there who believed that like Watergate was a setup. Nixon didn't do anything wrong. He was a hundred percent in the right on everything, and it was all like the Democrats trying to take him down. And so, their archives were like missing just a ton hmm. of stuff. Because they were just like, screw it. And they just got rid of everything. And so when they went back into the fold, or not back, when they went into the fold, the archivists were like freaking out because there was so much stuff missing. So I, I, I love listening to government people who are like really into their jobs and all about their bureaucracy. Because one, there's such a dedication for public service through these people. Like, you know, when people shit on the government, I think about these people who are just like, I love history, you know, I wanna preserve all this stuff. They they really truly have an unfettered adoration for our country and they just wanna serve. And hearing them just get so into the weeds on stuff, it's just, it's like listening to like record nerds or like people who love like Andre the Giant and they're like, Under the Giant was, a, was slammed by Big John Stud in China when they did that one tour in 1979. So Hulk Hogan clearly was not the first one to do it. And you're just like, please keep talking because you're insane. And I love this.
1: So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, Because we, we are on the Lucha Central Podcast Network, I will throw out the fun fact that uh, Hogan was slammed in Mexico by Kinect before he was i mean sorry andre was slammed in mexico by Kinect, before he was slammed by hogan in the united states so people can can look that excellent up. um <laughs> thank you uh,
2: well and that's so, why like dude like i keep saying i just want to like take you out for drinks one day and just like hear all your awesome wrestling stories so i think you need to do like a podcast of just like kevin remembers and just having uh, you by like a crackling fire Drink, drinking something alcoholic while I just sit there and pepper you with like and then what happened and then what happened uh, cuz I think that was really mean
1: well my memory was 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 up that so so I want to jump into the, really, I mean, we've had, this is great, but I want to jump into kind of the bulk of of, uh, my topics here, which was your work in music and wrestling. But before that, you know, because we've been on this role about the government, uh, I just want to jump to quick, real briefly, if you're allowed to, talking about your current role uh, working with the National Institute of Health, and just this past week, this poster of Dr. Fauci, that was uh released i guess um and i I saw it online and immediately recognized your your work and your style and uh so i guess uh just real quick if you can talk us talk us through your your kind of non-commercial uh corporate work and governmental work that you're doing these days
2: so i ran my own design company out of my house for about a decade and about Three or four years ago, I legitimately had a client give me a nervous breakdown. And I just went, I can't do this anymore. And you get to a point, I think I was about to turn 40 or so. And I just went, I can't have, I can't deal with this anymore. With people like threatening to kill my family over like $300. Um, And so I, I ended up starting to work for the government because, well, one of my friends worked a contracting company for the government and literally did the, he wrote a number, slid it to me and I went, okay. <laughs> and so I, start, I started working at uh, a couple of different, I worked at uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau for a little while. And that place was crazy bonkers. And then I left there and the National Institutes of Health uh, hired me in one day. They they posted a ad. I've always liked public service and I answered it and legitimately within one day they hired me. And it was, has been a wonderful experience. Uh, one of the things that people think about when when it comes to government work is like it's usually very boring it's usually very beige and they specifically hired me to kind of bring a more youth focused cool rock and roll whatever you want to call it it was a uh, tattoo five tattoos, vibes. It was
1: tattoos that did it
2: i covered all of them when i when <laughs> i got uh when i got hired and for like a month afterwards i wore like and this is like In September, which is still pretty warm in D.C., I'm, like, covering up with, like, sweaters and stuff. And, like, I'd walk in just, like, drenched, like, with, like, covered in sweat. And they'd be like, Jeff, why don't you just wear a T-shirt or a short sleeve shirt? And I was like, no, 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 I'm good. And I was like, I need to get through, like, the – I need to get through this um, approval period of, like, 90 days or whatever uh, before I can show off all of my horrible – non-threatening tattoos i'm covered in tattoos and like they're like adventure time cartoons and like stuff that like there's a a yusagi yojimbo lizard um there's like you know black
1: cats and well don't you have at least don't you have at least one or two tattoos that your kids have drawn
2: i have more than one or two i have like 15 (laughs) on, on there and they're horrible and they're like Oh, and they're, like, I love them, but, like, they all look like prison tattoos, because, like, you know, my, like, four-year-old drew it, so it's, like, it's a awesome. little, like, ba-bomb from Mario Brothers, you know, that that's all, like, all whacked out, and I have this on me, and then I go talk to people who have Nobel Prizes, and they just kind of, like, stare at me funny, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, like, so I, like, when the COVID outbreak started, I was doing, um, you know how to like, how to distance yourself from people. I did a I did a poster about how to stay six feet apart from somebody on an elevator. Um, and the way <laughs> you do that is they you get into a back corner, and then the person goes into the front corner, and that's how you reach. That's how you remain six feet apart from each other. You know, I've done ones about you know how to keep up mental uh, resilience during quarantine and how to reach out for help. Um, and yeah, Dr. Fauci is somebody who is now a household name and we would see walking in every morning, uh, to go do interviews like nonstop. And it's fun because you'd see him on TV and we were making some of the graphics or stuff that he'd be showing, We helped make the backdrop for him, things like that. And so I started doing a whole series um, of portraits just basically to keep myself entertained while I self-quarantined. And I did one for Dr. Fauci basically because my mom asked me to, my mom has a weird (laughs) obsession with him. Um, And he does, he does look like my stepfather. So I guess it's okay. But, uh, in the building that I work in building 10 he's I think on the 14th level Uh, that's where his office is and so people nurses researchers and all that um started leaving like thank you notes and so we managed to get to do a poster through my group we did like a, a fairly large poster just expressing our appreciation to his service because he is getting beat up a lot um yeah and we put it up there, and people like have really taken to it. It got spread all over NIH, um, which is about a community of around sixty thousand people. And so, you know, I think sometimes people forget that public servants, you know, they have a, a weird perception of us. He's in a re- he's a really amazing person and has done a lot for the betterment of America. Um, and so, yeah, I actually ended up getting a thank you note from him. And, uh, it was, it was very nice. It was like very dry. It was like something like your uncle would send you <laughs> after like you give him a sweater on Christmas. And I loved it cause I read it and I noticed there was a typo, which I thought was cool. I was like, Oh, he misspelled very, you know, like who misspells very. Um, and he signed it like, you know, thank you, Tony. And I was like, Oh, now next time I see him, I can call him Tony. You're so, in. Yes,
1: you know, him and I are buds. So between the adventures with the Pope and modern day, uh, you really started doing a lot of illustration and design, I guess I would say, uh, in the music world uh, for a lot mm-hmm. of bands that uh, both I've heard of and others have heard of. Um, how did that transition happen? How did you end up starting to work in the music industry for uh, design work?
2: So, I mean, I've always loved the music industry uh, ever since being a kid and listening to like Minor Threat and Black Flag and all those other bands, uh, which is what initially brought me to Washington, D.C. There was a big kind of do-it-yourself DIY attitude that I always liked. I'd make my own zines. I would do my own artwork and just kind of put it out there. Uh, When I went to get my master's degree at SVA one of the thing for your thesis you have to create a product and you have to release it in theory and so while other people were doing like I'm gonna be doing walking tours of the Gowanus canal or I'm gonna make high-end sushi boxes that hold you know samples of wine I was like F- this man I'm gonna do a t-shirt company and I'm gonna just have it be super punk rock and have it be about wrestling and Dungeons and Dragons and and things like that. And so with that, I had to design, I had to learn how to do screen printing and the screen printing class I I took, which was like at eight o'clock on a Saturday. uh, When I say eight o'clock, I mean in the morning. And it was like me and like four other people, Uh, in this little dingy basement screen printing department. And the teacher was always clearly hung over from the night before. And he'd just be like, yeah, well, you need to screen print something. um, So just go figure out what the fuck you want to screen print. And then just come in here and screen print it. And I was like, (laughs) cool. I I'm, I'm down with that. Cool. And so uh, at the beginning of this, you know like i was going to see shows all the time at like the bowery ballroom and the mercury lounge and every plaza and so firewater uh one of my favorite bands was playing and i just said i just said to myself like i'm gonna make posters for firewater and i ended up doing like 50 posters i mean they're horrible i mean they're not bad but like yeah they're terribly done and i <laughs> did it so like I didn't have to like learn registration. I didn't have to learn anything. It was just like black. It was like black ink on white paper with like a varnish of black on top. And so like, there's no registration, nothing like they all came out different on every single one. And I got in contact with the band and they were like, Hey, why don't you show up at the show? We'll get you in for free. And you know, give us a few posters, and then like whatever we sell, we'll we'll split, and then we'll hang out afterwards. And I went, and I went. This is (laughs) the greatest thing of all time. And you know, looking back, I probably lost money because I was like buying sheets of like Bristol paper, which is like really expensive paper, instead of like buying stuff in bulk. But like, I went. I had a great time. When you're twenty six, twenty seven. And like, you can go hang out with bands that you love and, you know, get paid for it. Like, yeah, go do that. Um, And so I started doing that and I started doing it for like a bunch of bands. And I would just, you know, the power of the internet because like the internet was just kind of really becoming more accessible to people. And you would just write, you know, 16 horsepower and be like, hey, I know that you're coming to New York can I do a poster for you? And here's the deal. And they'd go, sure. And you would end up doing a poster for them. And it was kind of very wild West at the time. You know, I made a ton of mistakes, um, but I I learned a hell of a lot doing it. And then when I moved back to Washington, DC, I just kept on doing it.
1: I think that, I mean, this is, it's funny because today there is an entire industry of top end designers and illustrators, you know, yourself included, who get hired by these agencies to create unique concert posters, which, and I, I mean, to me, you know, I'm not super into the music scene the way I was, uh, you know, uh, in the past, but it seems like really in the last few years, maybe in the last five years, it's really become such a big thing to where you and other artists that we work with like urban aztec and pale horse you're know, getting hired and primus and uh this band and that band 311 they they want unique poster for every single night of the tour and it's being done by these you know known uh, on some level artists and it, you know it seems like you were kind of maybe a little bit ahead of the time uh just deciding to do these unique gig posters um they that were coming to town i think that's that's really cool
2: yeah i mean it it i think right now it's taken it's taken off really big uh, and that probably happened around five or six years ago it got huge and it's really awesome but it it also has its own kind of wariness and its own downfalls because of that Um, like 10 years ago, 14 years ago, you could find people doing really cheap t-shirt companies. And so Mm -hmm. everyone started a t-shirt company and now like none of those t-shirt companies are around. And that's kind of what doing gig posters is like now where every young designer wants to do a gig poster. And it's like, oh, it's really cool. I got to do one for Foo Fighters. Oh, it's really cool. I got to do one for Nine Inch Nails. But then you realize like, oh, I spent 30 hours on this and I got paid $300. I would have made more money if I had just worked at 7-Eleven. And so there's a lot of really cool art coming out. And there's a lot of really
1: amazing
2: people doing some really killer stuff but it's also like an industry that's that's slowly eating itself and i wonder how much longer we're gonna have with this before people just say it and and end up leaving i mean i i think i was probably the third or fourth wave of designers who started doing concert posters after you had, like, the original, like, Frank Kozik and Coop and mm-hmm. people like that.
1: I've got and some uh, all of, of theirs. All, it,
2: oh, yeah. And y- you ask them, you know, I'm, you know, people like me are the ones who are killing the industry. And now, like, I'm the guy who's saying, like, all these young kids are killing the industry. <laughs> and it's true, you know? And a lot of it's just because of we'll find somebody to do it cheaper. So why the f- should we hire you? And that has definitely happened to me quite a few times.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, even just on, on design and, uh, you know, graphic art, you know, I mean, from, from my side of the table, right. The, the, the person that has to hire the designer or the illustrator, there are certainly times where, you know, depending on the project, you do have to go, you know, well, everybody's out there doing it around this price, but I can get it done super awesome at this other price. Does this project warrant, you know, going one way or the other? Um, you know, and of course we all always want to go with the, the, the best art uh, possible, but sometimes, you know, depending on quantity and, and what, what people are putting out and how they're putting it out there, there are those, you know, economic uh, questions as well. And I think, yeah, it, it gets hard because, Especially when there's, you know, industries that don't really have unions to protect, you know, bottom line pricing and things like that. It's certainly going to always be a struggle. And that is the conclusion of the first half of my interview with Jeff Everett of Rockets Are Red. But we are about to get into a whole another hour focused. On professional wrestling, focused on his work of pro wrestling into his music posters, the work that we've collaborated on together, some of his other work within the pro wrestling and lucha libre industries. So definitely tune in to part two. It's dropping right now as well. So just head back to where you got this podcast from, pick up part two, and then we'll be back next month with a whole brand new guest and more of the business of the business. Thanks so much for joining us.